Open up, if you will, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and I'm sorry I do not have slides for you this morning, but I will try really hard to make the outline very clear as we go. And if you're with us Wednesday night, then you know that we are quickly approaching the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Christ. And it's obviously as you read through the scriptures, as you read through the next few passages, obviously just a very dark time. A very dark time as you read about how the one who was sent to save the world is treated with so much hate by the very people that he came to save. Um, As we looked at Matthew 26 on this past Wednesday night, verses 1 to 5, Jesus reminded his disciples, Alejandro told us for the fourth time, that he was going to die, that he was going to be crucified. Jesus told his disciples that numerous times. They never really seemed to get it. They never really seemed to fully understand or comprehend what Jesus was talking about and definitely not the significance of it. But he told them as clearly as possible. He wasn't speaking cryptically or in some kind of riddles. He told them in verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, the Son of Man is Jesus, is to be handed over for crucifixion. And, And from here on out, until we get to the resurrection, it's dark. It's very dark. It's mankind murdering unjustly, the very one who was sent to save them. But this morning, we get a little bit of a break from the darkness. This morning, we get a little bit of a reprieve. And in fact, we get a very stark contrast to the dark hatred of chapters 26 and 27. In the middle of all this hatred towards Jesus... Matthew tells us about the courage of a woman, a woman that Matthew doesn't even name. Now, John does give us a name, so we'll find out who this is. But Matthew doesn't even record the name of this woman who shines and is a stark contrast to everything else going on in the chapter by the way she honors, loves, and expresses that love towards Jesus. It's a, it's a very bright contrast. In verses 3 to 4, think back to Wednesday night with Alejandro. You have the hostile hatred of the Jerusalem elders. In verses 3 and 4, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. You have the Elders of Jerusalem, the chief priests, even many of the common people who are plotting in their hatred for Jesus as to how they are going to murder him, how they are going to arrest him, put him through an unjust, unfair trial, and murder him. And then you get, in contrast to that darkness, introduced to a woman in verse 7 who is eternally set apart and eternally put on display for her honor and love. For Jesus. 
And then as soon as we get to verse 14, we're going to look at verses 6 to 13 this morning. And then as soon as you get to verse 14, it's right back to darkness. Right back to darkness. So today we have a little bit of a reprieve. I get to preach like the last happy passage until we get to the resurrection of Christ. And it's the story of the woman who anoints Jesus. And I don't have an outline on the PowerPoint, so I'll try to make it really clear for you where we're going. But three different parts sections that we'll look at. Part one, the honoring of the Lord. Part two, improper indignation. Improper indignation. And part three, a powerful symbol. And here's our theme. Here's what this woman is showing us. Jesus is the anointed perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the anointed, perfect sacrifice. And what's remarkable is this woman, she doesn't even realize in fullness the significance of what she's doing. She's doing a great thing. And she's doing it out of honor for Jesus, out of love for Jesus. It's a great thing. But even she doesn't realize the fullness of what her actions symbolize. But we'll talk about that. Part one. The honoring of the Lord. While all the elders, chief priests, people are plotting to kill Jesus, verse 6 tells us, Now, at the same time, while Jesus was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head and he, as he reclined at the table. Now, when you hear this, does this sound like a familiar story to any of you? Yeah, it's a kind of familiar story. It's probably one if you've, stu- it's okay if you haven't. Um, many people probably have never heard this story. But if you've been in church and read the Bible often, you're probably going to be a little bit familiar with what's going on here. And it's because all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recount uh, uh, the Jesus being anointed by, the, by a woman. Now, here's what's interesting, though. There's actually two different occasions where something similar to this happened, okay? The first occasion, only Luke records. So the second time something similar to this happened, um, Luke actually doesn't record it. We're re- looking at the second time this morning, um, Luke doesn't record what we have this morning. Matthew, Mark, and John do. But the first time something similar to this happened, Luke is the only one who records that, and he records it for us in Luke chapter 7. And you might think, well, maybe this is the same event that just they got mixed up, they got a little confused, um, because both of them involve Jesus um, being honored in having this perfume or oil poured on him. Um, But there's enough differences between what happens in Luke chapter 7 as the first event and what Matthew, Mark, and John record for us that we're looking at this morning. There's enough differences to give us a very high level of confidence that we're actually talking about two totally different events. In fact, there's really only one similarity. The one similarity with both of them is that they happen at the house of somebody named Simon. They happen at somebody's house named Simon, but when you go back to the 
contemporary time that Jesus is living in, Simon was a very, very, very common name. Like for us, John or Steve, you know? Like if I told you today I'm going to Ian's house for lunch, it's like, okay, who are you talking about? Ian Bonish? You talking about Ian Broniter? You talking about Ian Clary? We could be talking about, I, I got to give you more, right? So like Simon, same thing in Jesus' time. Um, it, it could have been, uh, it, there are many different people named Simon, but and beyond that, the similarities end. So in Luke chapter 7, the first time that something like this happens, Luke tells us that that woman was known as a very immoral woman. The story we're looking at this morning, John tells us that this is actually Lazarus's sister, Mary. Um, in Luke chapter 7, the first uh, event, the Simon who is hosting Jesus is a Pharisee. And this morning, the Simon we're looking at is known simply as Simon the leper. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is in Galilee, the northern region of Israel. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is in Bethany, which is just a little bit outside of Jerusalem, southern region of Israel. In Luke chapter 7, it's the Pharisees who have a problem with what takes place when this woman anoints Jesus. And the Pharisees, their objection is, hey, what is, remember, this is an immoral woman uh, who is known as immoral. The Pharisees are like, what's Jesus doing? Like, Jesus is letting this immoral um, woman touch his feet. And the passage we look at this morning, very interestingly enough, it's actually the disciples who raise some objections to what's being done to Jesus, and for a totally different reason that we'll see. So when you read the account in Luke chapter 7, and then you read the account of what we're studying this morning in Matthew, Mark, and John, there are vastly different um, circumstances that help us to be very confident. There's really two different times where Jesus was anointed and honored by a woman in a somewhat similar fashion. And as I mentioned, verse 6, back to Matthew 26 here, verse 6 tells us that Jesus is in Bethany. Bethany is where this unfolds. That was a little village just right outside of Jerusalem. Um, Alejandro reminded us on Wednesday night in, that Jesus tells his disciples that the Passover is coming. My crucifixion, my death is going to coincide with the events of the Passover. And um, the, during the time of Passover, many, many, many people would flock to Jerusalem. Way too many people to just be held in Jerusalem. It got too crowded. So people would stay not just in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but they would go to the various villages around Jerusalem too and just stay there. And that's what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They're staying in Bethany because they're there for the Passover, but it would just be far too crowded in Jerusalem. And you'll remember that Passover was about celebrating when the people of God, the nation of Israel, when they were delivered from slavery, the slavery of the Egyptians. And I love the way the Bible does this. When God controls history and when God controls events 
and the circumstances and the things that take place in history and in the lives of his people, he does it all for a purpose. All the events of history are orchestrated for God's purposes, and sometimes we don't get the advantage of knowing why. There's plenty of things that happen throughout Scripture and throughout history that we have no idea why God allows those things to happen. Like Job. Job is a great example of somebody who died with no understanding, necessarily, of why God allowed the events in his life to take place. Now, we have the advantage. We can go read Job and see very clearly, like, God allowed those things to take place in the life of Job for the edification of the body of Christ for eternity, right? But sometimes we don't know. But one of the, when you look at the Passover and the events in Exodus chapter 12, and you see all the foreshadowings of the gospel, all the foreshadowings of the redemption we would have in Jesus Christ, it is an absolutely beautiful picture. You see that the historical events that took place in Exodus chapter 12 were to paint a picture of the redemption we have in Jesus Christ for eternity. Just think about all the symbolism and how intentional God was. God's people Israel, they are slaves in Exodus chapter 12, slaves to Egypt. Are we born into slavery? Absolutely. We are born in slavery to sin. We are born as slaves to sin, and we need redemption. And in redeeming God's people from slavery to Egypt, God brought judgment. God brought death. He brought destruction. Remember, it was the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt. That was God's judgment on the nation of Egypt, on the kingdom of Egypt. And the only way to be saved from the judgment of God in Exodus chapter 12 was to sacrifice a lamb and to have your household covered in the blood of the lamb. It was only those who were covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb whose God's judgment would pass over. That's where they get the word Passover. And just as we are born in slavery to sin, God's judgment upon sin is coming. Death and destruction are coming. And the only way we can escape God's judgment, his wrath that's coming upon the sin that we are born in slavery to, is if the blood of Jesus Christ, his death, is credited to us, pays the penalty for our sin, and we are covered by the blood of Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see how Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover and the things that are being celebrated there are just a perfect picture played out in history and recorded for us in the Bible, a perfect picture of the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. When you read Exodus chapter 12, you're not just reading some simple historical event. You are reading a, save, a picture of the saving work of God through Jesus Christ. That's what the Passover is celebrating. And of course, the people in Israel during the time of Christ, they missed the bigger significance 
they, they by and large missed the point. But that is what the Passover was all about. In Matthew 26, as they, sell, as they prepare to celebrate the Passover, leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus and his disciples are in Bethany, and that they're at the home, Matthew tells us, of somebody called Simon the leper. Simon the leper. We don't know anything else about him, but apparently he had some kind of nickname derived from perhaps I don't know if his family or him himself at some point had leprosy. And perhaps this is somebody that Jesus healed, right? Jesus healed numerous people with leprosy. Perhaps this is um, one of those individuals. Certainly he wasn't suffering from leprosy at the time of uh, this event. Nobody's going to go to the house of a leper. Um, somebody with leprosy is not going to want to be hosting a party, right? Um, it, was, it would be in violation even of the Mosaic law to be in the house of somebody with leprosy. But for whatever reason, this man is known as Simon the leper. But also at this gathering, John tells us that there's three other very familiar people, some friends of Jesus that we've ran into before in the Gospels. Lazarus, Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they are both here at this event as well. John chapter 12 tells us that. And John tells us that this woman who Matthew does not name in verse 7 is Mary. Mary the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And Matthew tells us here that Mary comes to Jesus with an aster, alabaster vial of very costly perfume and pours it on his head. Very costly perfume. This wasn't like Old Spice or Brew. What, what do young people put on these days when you want to smell nice? Old Spice? You're still doing Old Spice? I thought maybe we had advanced beyond that. That's a, all right, okay, cool. Yeah, so this isn't that. Like, this isn't something you're going to Walmart um, to buy. Matthew tells us it's very costly perfume. Mark and John tells us it's nard, which is really uh, oil ac extract from this plant that you could find in India during the time. And they also tell us, Mark and John tell us, that the cost for this was about 300 denarii. So that would be, in that time, about one year's worth of wages, which is pretty remarkable, right? Like, I don't know what average annual income in the United States is, like $45,000, $50,000. Um, that's a pretty remarkable cost for a bottle of perfume. It got me kind of looking around, like, how much does, I haven't bought cologne, and I don't know, I quit trying to smell good, like, kind of after high school. I just gave up. So I haven't, I actually found, looking around, there's a Karen brand, C-A-R-O-N, my last name. There's a Karen brand of cologne out there. I might get that just to have it, you know, just to say, hey, I got a bottle with my name on it. I found there's a Paco Rabanne, $60,000 for a bottle, $60,000. Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty, $500,000. Like, what does that do? Like, what does smelling like that do? Like, your wife is mad at you? Like, you didn't, you didn't take out the trash, you just hit her with a dose and she's good? Like, I don't know what that does. $500,000 better do some magic, right? But 
we're looking at something here that she pours on Jesus, just pours it out that would even in that time be about a year's worth of wages. This is lavish, right? I mean, that's, could you imagine doing that? $50,000 in our day, just pouring that out. And would we all, if we went around and we asked like, hey, is Christ worthy to be honored in this way? What are you going to say? Yes. You're all going to say yes. You're all going to say that Christ is worthy of any level of honor, right? Are you going to say, is, Christ, is honoring Christ a good thing? Yes. We're all going to say that, right? We're all going to go around and agree to that. Now think about the disciples, like remove them from this situation. Pretend like before this happens, you're at, you're at a restaurant. And you're like, hey, Peter, is honoring Christ a good thing? What's Peter going to say? Yeah. Is, is any level of worship and honor worthy of, or is Christ worthy of any level of worship and honor? What's Peter going to say? Yeah. What about John? What do you think he would say? Yeah, Thomas. Yeah, they're all going to say it, right? Judas. What would Judas say? Yeah, they're all going to say it, you know? They're all going to say he is worthy of any level of honor and that honoring him is a good thing. But they have a very interesting response in this passage. We see what I'm going to call part two here, improper indignation. Improper indignation. Look at verses 8 to 11. Let's see how the disciples respond. Do they respond how you would expect? No, the disciples were indignant when they saw this. And they said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Again, we would say that honoring Christ is a great thing. And the disciples, remove them from this circumstance, they would have said the same thing. So what is going on here? Why this response? Well, they say she's being wasteful. And it does seem kind of crazy, if we're being honest, to just pour out a year's worth of wages. Like, if we're being honest, that does feel weird, right? And so, on the surface, their concern seems valid. And it seems even more valid because what do they tie it back to? Like, not just simple waste. This is something that we could have used for the poor. We could have, they, they connect it to what truly is a good thing. Caring for the poor. But what we discover, and especially in the Gospel of John, John lets us in on a little secret. There's something bigger going on here. There's something deeper going on here. John lets us in on some important details about Judas. Even though we haven't gotten to the betrayal of Christ yet, just the name Judas. We all know he's the betrayer of Christ. When we think of hypocrisy and being fake, being a phony, being a phony follower of Christ and a um, traitor, Judas is the name that we all think about. We know what he does. 
we know he is the imposter among the disciples. And John tells us that Judas is actually the one who kicks off the complaint. Judas is the one who kicks off this indignation. He was the first to say, hey, what is she doing? She is wasting something that could have been given to the poor. But was Judas really concerned about the poor? Was that really what his issue was? If you look at John, John chapter 12, verse 6, John tells us very clearly, that's not the real issue. The real issue is that Judas was a thief. And that whatever money that the disciples had with Jesus that they would do ministry with, I mean, they're traveling, right? They got to buy food. They got to pay for places to stay. They, they do help people along the way. They had to keep a little money box with them. Judas would steal from that. John chapter 12, verse 6. Now Judas said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. Pilfers just to steal. He used to steal from the money box. Judas was corrupt. And it's his corruption that is really the source of this complaint against Mary who has honored Jesus in such a way. Now, if you put yourself there in the room, I bet the other disciples did maybe join in with Judas, right? And did they have the same level of corruption? No, they didn't have the same level of corruption. They didn't have these improper motives, but you know how things are. Like you're in a big group of people, so you got all the disciples in there. And um, at this point, they themselves, they don't know what Judas is doing. They don't know that Judas is stealing. They don't know that Judas is an imposter. Remember, at the Last Supper, they're all looking around like, who's the imposter? Like they don't, they themselves don't even know. So they're deceived about Judas as well. And, and so um, on the surface, when Judas speaks up among the 12, what he says makes sense, right? Like, okay, yeah, I, Judas has a good point. I didn't think of it this way, but Judas has a good point. This seems like a waste. We could have uh, given all this to the poor. So even though Judas is speaking from improper evil motives, I think the other disciples would go along with what on the surface seems like just a valid complaint. And so Jesus cor- steps in to correct them. And in verse 10, he says, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Honoring Christ, worshiping Christ, that is always priority number one. Always priority number one. And given the moment, given the circumstances, we are in the last week before the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion is coming. Given the moment and the circumstances, this anointing of Christ, this symbolic preparation of the sacrificial lamb for burial, this unique opportunity takes the highest importance. Jesus here is not in any way trying to diminish the importance of caring for the poor. You go to any point in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, any, any place you go, 
The Bible has a high priority and emphasis on caring for the poor. Old Testament to New Testament, there's an em- emphasis. But the reality is we live in a fallen world. The poor will always be with us. That's just the nature and reality of living in a fallen world. And in fact, Jesus' words here, Deuteronomy 15, uh, listen to what Deuteronomy 15, 10 and uh, 10 to 11 tell us. This is where Jesus is quoting from. Deuteronomy 15, 10 to 11 says, You shall generously give to the poor, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to, your needy and, to the needy and poor, in your land. That's, that's Deuteronomy. That's what Jesus is quoting from right there. The, the importance of caring for the poor, but the reality too, in a fallen world, the poor will always be with us. Think back to like Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, Paul is kind of unique with the other apostles. He was not one of the original 12. He was called in an untimely fashion. Um, and so initially, the church wasn't exactly what sh- sure what to do with Paul, but once they realize he has been called as an apostle by Christ to be a faithful minister of the gospel, and they completely agree to his inclusion as, as an apostle, Galatians chapter 2, verse 10 says that they only asked Paul and the people with him to remember the poor. Very thing he was also, he says, eager to do. So Jesus here isn't in any way diminishing caring for the poor. The Bible at all points has an emphasis on caring for the needy and the poor. And in fact, even the passage that Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy 15 is in the context of caring for the poor. But what Jesus is also pointing out is like, hey, caring for the poor is an all-the-time opportunity, an all-the-time thing. We live in a fallen world, and just part of that is that there are going to be those who are in need. Disciples of Christ always have the opportunity to care for the poor, but how often do you have the opportunity to physically anoint and honor Christ and prepare his body for burial? This is a once-in-eternity event. This was an opportunity never to be repeated. And that is emphasized in part three here. A powerful symbol. A powerful symbol. Now remember, Mary didn't understand the significance of what she was doing. And that's common. Like go back even to Exodus chapter 12, what we were just talking about. God was orchestrating the events that are recorded for us in Exodus chapter 12. People in the middle of those events didn't realize the significance of what they were doing. They didn't realize the significance when they were in Exodus chapter 12 and they knew like, hey, we've been told um, by Moses we need to sacrifice this lamb and put it on the doorpost of our house because the wrath of God is coming and we don't want to be subject to the wrath of God. Like they, they didn't realize that, hey, this is actually a picture that in a few thousand years the Messiah is going to come and die on the cross. This is all the time in life where God orchestrates the events of history and we don't even understand the significance of it. 
This is just another example here in Matthew 26 where Mary's carrying out this uh, act towards Christ and she doesn't understand herself even that God is orchestrating her actions. Even the actions and the response of the disciples in, in giving us a bigger picture, a more significant picture of God's redeeming work. But I'm going to read verses 12 to 13 powerful symbol and there's three things that i want to point out that this is pointing us towards verses 12 to 13 for jesus says for when she poured this perfume on my body she did it to prepare me for burial truly i say to you wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her there's three important promises, three important things that Jesus is saying this act is pointing us towards. The first one is what he's already told us a few times. He is going to be crucified. He is going to die. He just told them in verse 2, and he is telling them again, she is preparing my body for burial. I truly am going to be crucified and die. This is just another reminder. The second thing, the second powerful thing that Jesus is telling them here is that there's going to be a resurrection. He's going to be crucified, but that's not the end of the story. The crucifixion is absolutely not the end. Now, don't get confused. Jesus does literally die. Literally die. Jesus Christ was literally a man living on this earth who was crucified and as a man literally died. 100%. As dead as any other human being dies. His heart quit beating. Jesus had a literal physical heart just like you and I. And on that cross, it stopped beating. The blood that flowed in his veins, just like the blood flows in our veins, completely stopped. His lungs quit breathing. Jesus was absolutely a dead man, 100%. But that was not the end of the story. And tucked into this passage, if you pay attention closely, Jesus is promising that, yes, I'm going to go die, but that is not the end of the story. Yes, I'm going to be buried. She's preparing me for burial. But that is not the end of the story. Because in verse 13, he says, wherever this gospel is preached, now, this is something you've probably heard. What does gospel mean? What does gospel mean? Good news. Good news. Good news. The gospel means good news because it's a salvation message, right? It's a message that we are redeemed from our sins in Jesus Christ. But part of that good news is that Jesus Christ is no longer dead. That his death was not the end. That along with the crucifixion, three days later came the resurrection. And the fact that Jesus is promising them 
that there is a gospel, good news that will continue to be proclaimed, means that he also was telling them and understood that the crucifixion and his death was not the end. Because if the crucifixion was the end, if his burial was the end, there is no good news. There is no gospel. Jesus promising that the gospel is going to preach is also a promise that he, he will be raised from the dead. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15 is a very long and great passage on the importance of the resurrection and the fact that the whole Christian message, everything we are doing as followers of Christ, and the whole idea of the gospel is a complete waste and is absolutely nothing if Jesus Christ himself was not raised from the dead. Um, I'm gonna re- I kind of chopped up 1 Corinthians 15 and just put together the most important parts here. Let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, by which you are saved, and I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see, in Matthew 26, Christ says there's a gospel which has to mean that his burial, his death, his burial is not the end. He will be raised. In this passage, we have a promise of the resurrection, but there's one more promise in here. So Jesus is again promising them he's going to die, but he is also promising he's going to raise from the dead. And the third thing he promises here, the gospel will be victorious. The gospel will be victorious. It's going to be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. In in verse 13, Matthew 26, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus just told them, this gospel will be proclaimed through the whole world. That had to be really wild for them to hear. Wouldn't you think? That was like super wild. Like, what's he talking about? Put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in their shoes and in their circumstances. You've got a lot of really basic dudes here, right? Like some fishermen, former tax collector, A lot of guys we know hardly anything about. Like, these are some pretty basic guys. They're sitting there 2,000 years ago in Middle East, and Jesus talking about, hey, what's starting here is going to spread through the whole world. They're a part of something that's about to ignite the whole world, and they're probably very clueless to it. That had to be wild for Jesus to say such a thing. Like, what a wild idea. And this is, too, this is like, I mean, these days you got TikTok, Twitter. You, it's easy to go viral these days, right? It's easy to go through the whole world. This is 2,000 years ago. 
This is, there's no internet, electricity, telephones, none of that. How, what do you mean this is going to go through the whole world? But it's exactly what Jesus says is going to happen. And he, he stays on this too, right? Like Jesus tells them this numerous times, even after his resurrection. Think Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Which again, put yourself in their shoes. They got to be thinking, whew, that sounds like a big task. Like, how's that work, right? And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The gospel's always been about being victorious throughout all of humanity, throughout all the world. And in fact, John, Revelation chapter 7, one of the, John gets a vision of heaven. And one of the things he emphasizes for us is every tribe, tongue, and nation has representation. And here we are, it's 2023, Argyle, Texas, I mean, circumstantially, you'd think, like as far removed as we could possibly be from some Middle Eastern fishermen, former tax collectors 2,000 years ago, and we're all products of this gospel victoriously going through the entire world. You ever wish you could take somebody from history and bring them to modern times and let them just be blown away? I mean, think if you could take, like, Andrew, Peter, John, Thomas, and just bring them to church this morning. Their minds would be blown. They would be blown away. Look at what the gospel has done. And there's actually a fourth thing here that Jesus writes about, about Mary here, this woman. Jesus also says, wherever this gospel goes, wherever it's preached, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. He was right. Here we are talking about Mary this morning and her honoring of Christ. Two points of application, and it really all revolves around worshiping the Savior, worshiping Christ, honoring Him the way Mary does. The first thing is, have you accepted him as Savior? I mean, he, the, Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins so that we could repent from our sins, put our faith in him, and be forgiven. Be made right with the Father. That is why he came. Don't reject why he came. What could be more dishonoring to Christ than to reject the very reason he came to live and die and be raised again on this earth? The most important step in properly worshiping and honoring the Savior is to accept him as your Savior, have him as your Savior. Second, once you've made that step, if you do confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord, 
honor him, just like Mary did. Look to her example. What are some of the ways we can honor Jesus? What are some of the ways? I've got like four things, but I'm sure there's things I didn't think about. What would y'all say if you are a follower of Christ? Serving him. That's one of my four. Absolutely. How do you do that, though? Like, what's that look like? That's, those are just a few very specific, great examples, right? Serving in church in any way. Like, there's tons of things that have to happen, need to happen in the church. Serve. We'll go him and you. Worship, that's number two. Formal praise and worship, or that's uh, two of my four. Yeah, formal praise and worship, like through the studying of his word and through prayer and what we're going to do as a congregation, right? Singing praises. Singing praises, absolutely, absolutely. I had two more, but... Yeah, being an evangelist. That absolutely is a way of worshiping and honoring the Lord, Asher. Yeah, and you'd be exactly correct, right? Obeying him. I have obedience on here. Um, you know, it, part of having Christ as Savior is Lord and Savior. Part of repentance and lordship is that simple obedience. Like, you want to be a follower of Christ and do what he says. That's the prompting and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you when Christ is your Savior and produces that kind of fruit. Did you have something, William? Or is that kind of it? All right. Well, it was a good one. Um, trusting him, right? Like you're reliant, trusting in Jesus Christ for the details of life. Honor the Savior. Mary is a great example for us this morning. Um, it's a great thing for her, you know. And there's people who get recorded eternally in Scripture for things you probably don't want to be recorded for. And then you've got Mary here. Um, but just a great example for us, recognize, recognizing who Jesus Christ is and then seeking to live that out, like live out that recognition of who he is in a way that is honoring and glorifying to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your gospel and the impact it's had on our lives, the impact it's had on the world, and just pray that um, our lives would be given in service to it, that it would be really the consuming passion of our lives, that um, every day we look for just ways, how can we honor you, how can we serve you, how can our lives bring more glory to you, and just pray that that would always be priority number one for us. And as we go out this morning, pray that you'd help us to honor you with the way we respect and love each other and focus our hearts on worshiping and glorifying you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.